purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Atul Gawande, is many things, a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, a professor at Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School, director of the World Health Organization's efforts to reduce surgical deaths, and the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant for his work investigating modern surgical practices and medical ethics. But Dr. Gawande is also a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine, the winner of several national magazine awards, and the author of three acclaimed and best-selling books on medicine. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Happens in the End, a book about how modern medicine has failed us at the end of life, and one Malcolm Gladwell says is Gawande's most powerful and moving yet. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Atul Gawande. Thanks for having me. So at the beginning of Being Mortal, you tell a tale when you're in medical school. One of the things that you were assigned to read was Tolstoy's Death of Ivan <laughs> Ilyich. Why did you open Being Mortal with, with that vignette? Well, first of all, it's such a powerful story. You know, you wouldn't think these 19th century Russian aristocrats would have something to tell us in the 21st century about the experience of being ill and mortal and has a lot to tell us. But the other reason I told it is that, you know, I, I didn't, as I opened the book, I, I say I didn't learn, I learned about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. And what little I learned really came out of this one hour class we had talking about this book. And what's fascinating is how how I read it has changed at the time when we read it, you know, we thought here's this guy, um, Ivan Illich. He's a 45 year old magistrate who, um, ends up falling and having a pain on his side that turns out to be, you never find out what the disease is, but it turns out to be terminal. And over a period of a few weeks, he declines, he suffers, he dies and no one around him seems to understand. And the doctors are pretty terrible about it. You know, the doctors won't acknowledge that he might be dying. They always have something more that he should try. Um, and he's withering away in front of them, in front of him, and nobody's extending the hand of humanity. Now, at the time in medical school, we all thought, number one, we should get a CT scan. <laughs> We'd probably know what it is. We'd probably fix that. You know what? Right. And, then, and then the second thing is, we're all good people. We're, we're not going to be so crusty as these 19th century Russians. And then you get into practice and we're worse. We're worse. Hmm. You know, we, we, we still don't extend the hand of humanity and understanding and, you know, voice our worries about what's happening to somebody. And then you add that, you know, now I'm going to put you through on machines and through all kinds of incredibly traumatic procedures and, and medications that, you know, we're going to say is worth it, um, for you. And, uh, without ever really pondering and thinking about, you know, what are we, what is the life that we're trying to save? What is the, what is it that they're really living for that we want to preserve? Is that what you mean when you say we've medicalized mortality? Yeah. Um, it's in, it's in many, um, ways to think about it. It, it, I, it's increasingly apparent that we've had this about 60 year experiment in saying that, you know, mortality is a medical problem that you go to the doctor and the hospital and, and, and we'll address it. Um, and, uh, one way of depicting that is that in 1945, the majority of us died in our home. Um, 
we didn't think medicine would have much to offer, much to say, much to do. And, and in truth, we didn't in 1945. By the end of the 90s, though, so much capability had been discovered that you had 83% of us die in medical institutions, in um, hospitals and nursing homes. And the thought is that these were places which could offer you health and safety um, and, that, and that this would be something we all would want. But medical's viewpoint is very narrow. It's around the idea that our, that our priority is your survival and your safety. And yeah, if you're ready to give up, up on that, well, okay, fine. But this is, you know, we talk about health. This is what we want. But people's idea of well-being is bigger than just survival and being safe. Um, and that's where it gets actually really interesting. Well, tell us how you as a surgeon in, in the area of medicine that truly is uh, – you are, in a sense, a miracle worker. You do things that people in medicine couldn't imagine doing 100, 200 years ago. Uh, and it's very involved. You can see the direct results of it is about fixing things. How did you get involved in writing a book about something that ultimately can't be fixed and looking at um, the the poor match between this fix-it mentality and, and how we address uh, something that is more uh, multifactorial and painful and, and awkward for people. Well, you you hit it. I mean, my, when I went into surgery, it was because I, I loved the prospect of being a hero. <laughs> you could save the day. You could save the patient. You could fix the problem. And you feel really competent when you fix the problem. But But I found in practice that about half the time I was spending with patients whose problems I could not fix. And uh, and I didn't feel terribly competent at it. And I looked around and I didn't feel like I saw a lot of my colleagues doing a lot better. Um, and those unfixable problems were often ones of just aging and frailty or of chronic illness or of terminal illness. Um, and so, you know, I, I dove into this after, you know, I, along the way, I've been writing since I was a resident, started at The New Yorker and, and my last couple of books, um, have had many stories of people at this stage of their lives and finding I didn't have really great answers to offer. And then my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor in his brainstem and spinal cord. He himself a surgeon and we were navigating this together. I'd been in the middle of finishing a New Yorker piece about, um, called letting go, uh, about a 34 year old patient of mine who was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer during her, uh, final weeks of pregnancy, uh, with her first child. And that was another difficult course. Um, and we wanted to make it go better. I wanted to see that I could do better with my dad and with my patients. And so that was the investigation I jumped into trying to just talk to and meet as many people as I could and see inside this world from trying to see it from a different lens. Well, you, you mentioned the, the death of your dad, and just a minute ago, some shifting demographics. You you also bring in other family members, both family members of of your wife and your grandfather in India, and as a way to sort of elucidate uh, some of these shifting demographics and how that has affected both the way children and their parents view what they want and uh, what old age is defined as. Can can you talk a little bit more about your what you learned about uh, looking at your grandfather versus your wife's grandmother. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. There were like two poles, two, two polar opposites. 
and and um, going through their old age at about the same time. Uh, my grandfather lived to 110 <laughs> in a rural village in India, a farmer, you know, in a village of mud huts. And that was where my dad grew up, one of 13 brothers and sisters. For the last 20 years of his life, my grandfather needed, you know, almost 24-hour care. He had... Um, you know, he was hard of hearing, needed help with bathing, dressing, doing any variety of things. But, you know, although he had some memory loss, he, he was still, you know, largely very much intact. Um, and in our society, he would have been in a nursing home. He would have, you know, that kind of care we would have said, you're in a nursing home. At, in India, he was surrounded by family. He was at the head of his table every night for dinner. Uh, respected, venerated people came to him for advice on their businesses, on marriages, um, you know, we're nostalgic for that kind of life. Uh, the trouble with it is that, um, it worked because it enslaved young people. The multi-generational family worked because it was young women who, you know, did all of that 24 hour care. And, and also, and, and you mentioned Emily Dickinson as an example in the United States of somebody who never left the home and took care of her parents and because she was the youngest and because she was a, a, a woman. Yeah. The, um, you know, the striking thing is that we went, so this, th that we had the multi-generational family in the 19th century in, the, in a very similar way, you know, an agricultural society built around the, 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 the father in particular, and that the family was geared towards the economic success of that figurehead. And, um, and as, uh, two things happened, number one, economic progress came from giving young people freedom that they could work where they want, live where they want, marry whom they want. They, they moved to the cities. Um, the second thing was that the um, people lived longer and longer. And so we found that if you got pensions and social security, that you could create this thing called retirement, that poverty didn't, I mean, sorry, being old didn't mean you had to be impoverished. Um, and that created this golden age in the 20th century of this life where, you know, someone like my wife's grandmother widowed at 56, that would have meant total impoverishment in the 19th century or early 20th century. But because she got a pension and some savings from her husband, um, she lived 25 years in this, in this house that she always had in Arlington, Virginia, and did great. It works fabulously until you um, become weak enough, frail enough, ill enough that you can't be independent anymore. And, um, and so she started having falls at home. She had some moments of confusion, started having difficulties with the finances, crashed her car into the house across the street. And, you know, it wasn't one shoe dropped. It was like many shoes were dropping. <laughs> and finally she had to, she went into a nursing home, spent the last two years of her life there utterly miserable. It was, um, she felt like she was in prison. She kept saying, when you'd visit, when am I going to go home? And, you know, that story is a global story in India now, in China and Korea, as their economies advances, because young people are not um, hanging around the house waiting for the, um, uh, the, the parents living under the parents' rules and waiting for them to tell you what to do. Um, and that is, you know, a global tension that happens as we've added years to people's lives and discovered what, how much freedom we need for individuals to have economic progress. 
In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to author Dr. Atul Gawande about his latest book, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Happens in the End. Well, there's a, an impending crisis that's happening in the United States that's also demographic, and that's around uh, how many uh, physicians are trained in, in geriatric care. So we have, as, as you cite in the book, in 30 years, we'll have as many people over the age of 80 as we have under the age of 50, which is a remarkable statistic. Yet we have a declining numbers of doctors going into geriatrics, and you cite that 97% of all doctors don't get any training in geriatric care. This seems like a disaster of epic proportions. Would you agree with that? That that, that this is something that, if it's bad now, it seems like if it's we don't al- do anything, it's going to get much worse. It's really alarming. Um, part of the confusion for me was that um, I didn't know what geriatrics was. Like, okay, so I would hear from folks saying we ought to have more geriatrics, but then what, what is it that we're learning? And if you take Alice, my wife's grandmother, what you had were a group of people who understood, could understand really clearly to hear with someone with a variety of medical issues you couldn't fix, her high blood pressure, her increasing arthritis. Maybe you could do a knee replacement, and that has been incredibly valuable. But otherwise, if you couldn't fix the encroaching problems, um, the um, troubles with the memory, the, um, the falls she was starting to have, well, what could you do? And geriatricians were ones who focused on, well, let's put, make sure there's quality in the life you have. And so they would identify things like, you know, there are three major risk factors for having a fall where you break your hip. And most doctors don't know what those risk factors are. I didn't know them. They are, they are ones like being on four drugs or more after the age of 75 puts you at tremendous risk of having a fall, having, um, uh, having uh, weakness where you can't get up from a chair without having to push yourself up. They call it the get up and go test. Can you get up and go? If you can't, that's another risk that you're going to have a fall. And then... And we should mention that a hip fracture is a, a major risk of mortality for elderly people. So that's why they're why geriatricians are focusing on it. Well, it's part of why. The biggest reason to focus on is because a hip fracture is your biggest reason you lose your independence and the kind of reason you want to be alive. Sure. <laughs> and so it's not only that you know within six months half of those folks who've had a serious hip fracture at at and later years are likely to die. It's that those six months are pretty terrible often the way we manage and treat it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there are two things that they came to understand. One is that not only do we know the, that we know the risk factors, but second, that you could do something about them and that there are pretty straightforward things you can do. And I tell the story of a elderly woman who was having starting to have falls at home and a geriatrician intervened, um, and the results of the intervention was a year later, she'd had no falls. And she was still living in that apartment on her own, listening to the baseball games she loved, you know, having family over just the way she loved. She had a dog. She had a garden. That, you know, life is what she feared losing because you get that taken away inside the nursing home. Now, that's the second lesson is that there are uh, – there's no particular reason why just because you might reach the point that you actually need help and can't just live on your own, which all of us will come to at some point, no particular reason, that means you can't have those things that you love. You know, why Why can't you have a dog? Why can't you have a garden? Because you're, you need a wheelchair? I mean, why would that stop you? 
that's that's one of my favorite parts about being mortal was uh, this struggle with what is a nursing home for. And you say that originally nursing homes weren't really designed for the people who are in them. And, and I'm assuming that's what you mean. It's a struggle yeah. between safety and autonomy. But really, we've we've erred entirely towards safety and at the expense of any sense of of autonomy and, and human the human spirit essentially thriving in this space. We've made nursing homes, uh, assisted living, the extensions of the medical system. And that means that their primary priority is your health and your safety. And that sounds wonderful um, until one of the, these pioneers who was trying to build alternative places for people. Um, was this the woman in Oregon? Yes, Karen Brown Wilson, who founded assisted living here in Oregon as meant to be something that abolished nursing homes. Um, some of these folks call themselves nursing home abolitionists. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, it, it came out of, you know, when she was 19 years old, her mother had a stroke. Her mother was 55 at the time, uh, became severely disabled, had to live the rest of her 20 plus years in a nursing home. Um, and you know, what she said was, I just want a place where I'm allowed to, you know, lock my door and have some privacy when I want to. I want to be able to keep my stack of National Geographics without somebody coming in and clearing it all away. Where I want to have my knickknacks and, you know, so what if some of them are glass and might be unsafe, you know, so to speak. Um, that she wanted a place where she made choices, where you weren't told you wake up at 7.30 every morning and then, you know, there's the pill line at 8 o'clock and there's the 8.30 shower and, you know. I want to be in a place that you would genuinely call your home. And she built those kinds of places. She made assisted living to do that. It was tremendously controversial because what she was saying was safety and health were not the only goals of these places and that people were allowed to make trade-offs. They could have, you know, a refrigerator and take whatever food they wanted out of it. Even if they were diabetic, they could have, you know, a soda in their refrigerator. You know, people say, well, that's crazy. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> right. Um, and she showed that, giving people choices, put purpose back in their lives. Yes, they could make bad choices sometimes, um, but they, on average, did better, lived longer, less medications. Um, so, so we have these alternatives. I'll just add the one thing we were alluding to, which is that um, 20 years later, this isn't what assisted living looks like. We, um, the, when, we, when we make the decisions about where people will end up at this stage in their life. It's the kids who make the decision. And as Karen Wilson said to me, um, safety is what we want for those we love and autonomy is what we want for ourselves. And the kids go into the places and say, well, is it safe? But they don't ask, are they lonely? Do they have freedom to have their own choices? Can they stay connected to their friends? Can they have that garden? Can they keep their dog? You know, it's just, um, uh, and so these places end up feeling like prisons to to the people who go into them. Well, if Karen, if Karen Wilson did this radical attempt to uh, abolish nursing homes uh, and actually proved good outcomes, how, what, was, what happened that made assisted living become uh, more like nursing homes and sort of a transition into them instead of something that was truly different? Was, was it just ignored the outcomes because of liability concerns and, and children's concerns? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is I think we just... I think, um, first of all, the um, the families have uh, really demanded that these places place safety above all else without taking into account that our parents don't want to live that way. And it's the adult children who run, you know, 
the state legislatures and the regulatory commissions and who scream at the at the um, at the inspectors when they come by. What Karen Wilson showed is actually within the regulations, there's a lot of room to be able to create places that make different choices. And there are places all over the country that are adhering to the old model of what she had created. Mm-hmm. And then there's this explosion of new, really innovative, interesting places. You know, I, I describe a home that um, in upstate New York where they decided to bring pets into the into the place and the battles that ensued from uh, – uh, trying to do that. At the end of the day, the regulators all went along with it just fine. It was really the nursing home um, uh, staff and others who uh, had to grapple with things like, geez, if these patients have dogs, who's going to clean up after the poop? And we don't want that job. And by the way, isn't it unsafe? Um, and you can always pull that trigger on, well, it's not safe to have these cats around. Someone will be allergic. And they proved these patients did better, that people had purpose in their lives again when they actually had responsibility to help care for animals. Um, and uh, and that these we're, we're seeing a flowering of many of these places that are showing it's possible. And it's not just, you know, lawsuits and things like that aren't really holding us back. It's more our imaginations and our and our cultural focus. And, and it's not even a cost issue for a lot of these interventions either, is it? It's It seems like some of these interventions aren't necessarily expensive to implement. No, they're really much more about, you know, like, is it more expensive to have, um, to let elderly people decide if they want to sleep in for the day? No. Is it more expensive to allow them to, you know, make more choices around what kind of food they're allowed to have? No. Um, you know, can you let somebody go out and have a smoke? <laughs> it, it's not healthy. I'm a doctor, and I would be the first one to argue with everybody about, you know, whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. I argue with my patients, but at the end of the day, they do make their choices. And, um, uh, you know, when you're 85 and you've been smoking for 55 years and you made it that far, um, you know, the big complaints are yeah, – I'll give you an example. An Alzheimer's patient in a low-income housing facility in northern Mass where this incredibly innovative woman named Jackie Carson built a place where she said, I'm going to make it possible for people to stay in their homes no matter what. And in these low-income apartments, she had Ruth Barrett who was in her mid-80s with Alzheimer's disease, missing 30 years of life. She thought she was 55 years old, you know. She had forgotten her last of her three husbands entirely. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, she could voice, she, in her daily actions, she voiced what her priorities were. She loved being with people. She loved going out. She had favorite restaurants. Um, so, you know, they arranged for her to be able to go to TGI Fridays, which she liked to do. Um, and, and at the TGI Fridays, she'd order a margarita. Now, they would argue with her. Is margarita the best idea? You know, you're diabetic. You're in a wheelchair, you know. But... You know, it was a real source of joy, and they tripled up on the Depends. They sent her to the TGI Fridays with a few <laughs> friends, and, you know, there was some joy. Right. And they saw it as their job to make possible those but choices. It reminds, me of, joy. it reminds me of Leonard Cohen saying he's going to start smoking again when he turns 80. And, it, <laughs> and it's hard to argue with that trade-off of pleasure versus risk when yeah. when you're at 80 years old. Yeah. And this this brings up the idea of, heroic medicine versus the the mind of a geriatrician and maybe some of the flaws in the way humans are able to assess risk. You think about the Ebola, focus on Ebola when we look at how many people actually die of the flu in the United States or, for instance, 
even cholera or malaria in Africa versus Ebola and the amount of attention that gets placed in one place or the other. And I, and I wonder if the real skill of the geriatrician is putting risk in perspective also, not just balancing autonomy and safety. You, you have this nice vignette of a elderly woman who comes in with a lung nodule and instead of talking about the lung nodule at all, the geriatrician is mostly doing a, a foot exam in, in an attempt to assess her uh, ability to walk without falling. And, and that seems to really draw out something. It's not glamorous no. at all, what the geriatrician's doing. And, uh, but it's, it's pragmatic and probably has, in, from a probability perspective, a better chance of saving her life than focusing on the nodule. Yeah, on the list for a woman like that, she was in her early 80s, was, you know, has she had her colonoscopy? Has she had her mammogram? What's her blood pressure doing? And she has this nodule turn up on an x-ray. And what he noticed is her biggest risk was that she was going to fall. Um, and, uh, and being able to prioritize and think about that is partly, you know, what you say is true. It's partly about have you um, been able to put risk in perspective. But what they were really doing, and this is what fascinated me, was that Normally, the way we think about what happens at the end of life or happens with, happens with aging, we say, you know, it's just not worth it to go for X, Y, or Z. And therefore, let's not do, you know, let's, let's give up. Let's let nature take its course. Let's just let whatever things happen, happen. That's not what they're actually doing. What they were doing is they were deciding that they were still fighting, but it's a question of what are you fighting for? And what the geriatrician was fighting for, what even a hospice nurse was fighting for was someone who only has a few days left is just to have a better day than they have. And being able to do that takes some expertise. There's knowledge that's been created. There's, there's um, capabilities. And bringing those capabilities, not on sacrificing your time and quality of life now for the sake of some possible time later, but instead recognizing in folks who have unfixable problems that what we want to work on is giving you the best possible time now that becomes what you fight for. You know, my confusion as I embarked on the book was it felt wrong to only in a, against unfixable problems say, well, you know, we can always do something more. And it also felt wrong to say, or we can just give up. And what these folks were saying is you don't give up and we can do something more, but the goal is the best possible time you can have now. What do you want if time is limited or your health is only getting worse, you know, we can slow it down, but what are we slowing it down for? And let's fight for that. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Dr. Atul Gawande about his latest book, Being Mortal. That sort of points to the paradox of the research around hospice, that people who go on hospice actually end up living longer, even though that's supposedly the place where you go to give up. Yeah. But really, it's about um, s switching priorities and maybe less being more in certain circumstances and certain diseases. It, it has come across now in a number of studies. And um, what I think they're showing us is that, um, that the well, for one, people have priorities besides living longer. For two, number two, that the most effective way to find out what people's priorities are is to ask. Third, we don't ask the few that we do ask have much better outcomes. And an example of this, um, the best done study um, is a randomized trial done at Mass General Hospital that took stage four lung cancer patients early in their diagnosis. They had on average, they lived there on average 11 months. Um, 
half of them got usual oncology care, half of them got um, oncology care plus a palliative care specialist to talk about what their goals and priorities were if their health worsens or when it worsens. The group who had those conversations got those specialist visits around those goals, um, ended up choosing, you know, they took the first round of chemotherapy, second round of chemotherapy, but they were much less likely to go on to third or fourth round of chemotherapy. They um, had fewer days in the hospital. They were markedly less likely to die in the intensive care unit. They had about a third lower costs. They started hospice sooner. They had less suffering at the end of life, and they lived 25% longer. And that just meant that out of an unwillingness to have these conversations or out of just not having them for whatever reason, we have ended up leading people down a road to bad decision-making. And, um, and we've harmed people along the way. There is this Zen realization that when you are up against a problem that is, um, uh, you know, ha- that you've tried round one, round two, round three, but we're now up against a problem that that's just continuing to get worse, that just using our capabilities to focus on, well, let's give you the best possible time now and not worry about how much time that adds or takes away, that that ironically tends to preserve more time. But more importantly, it just preserves better time. Hmm. And do you think part of the the conundrum of fixing this this issue is how doctors are paid? And what I mean by that is it doesn't feel like the insurance model really takes into account the value of face-to-face time with a doctor and uh, the value of uh, counseling that may not involve a tangible intervention, uh, either a pharmaceutical or technological intervention that maybe is involved uh, talking about nutrition or, or happiness or, or, or something that may be hard to code for. Yeah. Um, it is definitely part of it. It's not the whole solution. I mean, there are a lot of forces pushing us to not have this conversation. The anxiety of the patient and the family, the anxiety of the doctor about confronting and speaking about these issues are, you know, my not feeling. I even knew the words and how to put them into words and have an effective discussion. But add to that, that you're simply not rewarded for having these skills. I mean, I'm paid very well to do another surgical procedure, but to take half an hour, which is often all it takes to have an effective conversation with somebody about what their goals might be, you know, though that is not well compensated. The lowest paid people in our profession are geriatricians, palliative care doctors, primary care physicians, um, who add a tremendous amount of value by being skilled in helping people through their decisions and really knowing that person really well, um, and helping them architect how they cope with the range of things they're up against. You have a congressman here, Earl Blumenauer, mm-hmm. who was the one who put on the table in Congress that you know we might make it so that physicians are uh, compensated better for taking the time to have these conversations. And that's what became the focus of the death panels. That's a death panel. And you know, it's because what people thought was that these conversations were really about a doctor talking to you about what you can't have. And I think that to me is an indication we haven't done our job yet about helping describe, um, even to us in the medical profession, what is this conversation? What is it about? Um, and that's, that's the fundamental reason I wrote the book is the hope that we, you know, and I think in fact, we are beyond the death panel. I think we are ready for, um, seeing when we're seriously ill or at these cusp moments in our life, 
you know, when you're, when you have a parent or grandparent who, you know, you have to think about whether you got to take away the car keys and have that conversation, how we have that conversation and how we make it normal to do that is turning out to be really important for the well-being of the parents, of the adult children, of our society, of our health system, and above all, just, you know, whether all of us are having the kind of life we want all the way to the end. And as the author of the checklist manifesto, do you do you feel like this warrants a checklist, a, a, rem- a list of reminders of what conversations we are or aren't having or what are the most common risk factors for our parents or ourselves as we age? Well, it's funny. One of the ways that as I – so for this book, I interviewed about 200 patients and, and family members about their experiences with aging and serious illness and also interviewed scores of – palliative care doctors, hospice workers, and so on. And I would ask them, I'd say, you know, I don't say it in the book, but one of my ways in, I would say, so if I were going to do better, what would you say should be on my checklist when I see my next patient with this problem? And that was a fabulous way to get them to tell me, how do I simplify it? And that was where they helped me recognize that the key questions to ask were, you know, what is your understanding of your condition or your health when I'm talking to a patient? What is... Um, what are your fears and worries for the future? What are your goals if time is short? And what are the outcomes you'd find unacceptable? Another part for the checklist they said was, you should be talking less than 50% of the time in these conversations. And I realized I was talking more than 90% of the time. And uh, Mm. that in order to not talk 90% of the time, not just throw facts and figures that don't get anywhere, um, it, you have to ask questions and you have to know the question asked and then you got to know how to deal with the answers because sometimes you ask a question, what are your fears and worries? And they burst into tears hmm. and we think that's failure. And in fact, it's, it's okay. And, and was there in the process of writing this book versus your other books, given that this book is uh, approaching something that is, isn't fixable as, is more potentially elusive and, um, was there a different literary aspect to writing it for you? Did you – the literary process of writing the book, did you feel like you were accessing something different as a, as a writer? You know, one of my – with everything that I write, I, I keep hoping I just make it better just as a writer. I want, I want to capture the smells and the, the feelings of being in these moments from whatever perspective you're coming at it as a family member, as a patient, as a doctor. Um, and so – yeah, I I thought a lot about the metaphors I wanted to use. You know, had very much in my mind Susan Sontag's um, uh, essay and then book about you know on on cancer as a metaphor. You know, stop comparing it to fruit, <laughs> and even even you know the way I would describe a tumor somebody has. I was really trying to think a lot about what what did I wanted to evoke. What was I really saying as I was working my way through it. Um, how was I going to make the structure of a story that would not make you feel so beaten down by the, um, you know, sometimes the harshness? I mean, I tell you what happens to your teeth. I help you what happens, tell you what happens to your brain as you get older. Um, you know, and, and invest it with some sense of, wow, there's so many different ways people experience this and come at it. And some people are doing it so much better than others and and see what I felt out of it, which was, 
hope and competence. I mean, the joy of being a doctor is the joy of being competent. I felt very incompetent in these spaces. Mm. And by the end of the book, I'm describing a way that I began to feel more competent just talking to friends over the phone about their crises or, you know, my dad or let alone my patients. Hmm. Well, it was great having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Gawande. It's great being here. Thank you. We're talking today with Dr. Atul Gawande, the author of Being Mortal. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.